thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Before we start the Bible study, there were some questions about regarding some books. So, books on uh, suffering and books on the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll give you three titles. They're by no means exhaustive, but they're really good read. If you haven't read them, I would recommend you take a look at those, see if they speak to you. On suffering, two books. First one is called He Leadeth Me. He Leadeth Me. And that is written by uh, Father Vivek or Sivek, the one I quoted from last time, and his, his stay in Russia, and all the sufferings he has to go through, and how he understood it. A very good book, written by a priest whose cause for canonization is now open. And the second <clears throat> is called My Soul Rejoices. And it's by a woman, her name is uh, Elizabeth Lesseur, L-E-S-S-E-U-R. She was a sickly woman, lived in the 19th century, a devout Catholic, and her husband was atheist. So he taunted her and mocked her faith. And because she was sickly, she couldn't have a lot of uh, Catholic friends around her. So she surrounded herself with really good books. And she kept a diary. And after her death... Her husband discovered her diary, read it, converted, and became a priest. And her cause is also open. So in one, on the one hand, you have a book on suffering from a man who did not understand God's will for him, who had to um, really carry his cross in Russia, in Siberia, for 25 years, seven years in uh, solitary confinement. And on the other hand, you have a case of a married woman who was completely misunderstood by her husband for, uh, for as long as she lived. So, meaning being married with him. So those are really good books on how suffering can be redemptive and the power of suffering in our lives. On the Holy Spirit, I recommend you take a look at a very small book titled The Immaculate Conception and the Holy Spirit. The Immaculate Conception and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is written by a French priest. Uh, his name is uh, Monteau Bonami. But if you just key in the title, even on Amazon, you should find the book. Very short book. And the reason why I think it's a beautiful book to consider is because uh, the Holy Spirit is best, the operation of the Holy Spirit is best understood in a, in a, in a Marian context. 
because obviously there's a very powerful link between Our Lady and the Holy Spirit. And he, he uh, is expanding on the, on the ideas and thoughts of St. Maximilian Kolbe. And he puts them into this context, very short but very, very powerful, on the operation of the Holy Spirit. So um, those are the three books I'd suggest you take a look at and see if um, they actually um, help you in these fields. Tonight we're going to look at chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Leviticus. Up to this point in our study of Leviticus, I have been mostly insistent on the nature of the sacrifice and the purpose of that sacrifice. Because coming from a Catholic background, we have to unlearn, in some sense, the meaning of sacrifice in a Catholic church to relearn it in a Jewish sense. And that's why you've seen me insisting over and over again on the fact that the sacrifice in Leviticus could not forgive, could not atone sins or faults that were done with premeditation. They could only forgive or atone for things that were done without intention or without knowledge. And that furthermore, there is no sanctifying grace in that system. Right? But our exposition so far has been a little bit on the cold side, or if you will, too objective, in the sense that we have not looked at it from the side of the worshiper the Jewish worshiper. We have not looked at it from that angle. And so tonight we're going to switch our approach and start to look at it from that angle, the relationship between the worshiper and the priest as they go through the offering of the sacrifices. So in the logical order of the book of Leviticus, the book starts by indicating the types of sacrifices that could be offered and should be offered. And that covers chapters 1 through Five. Now that this is taken care of in chapters 6 and 7, the, the book, the Lord, now focuses not so much on what you must offer, but how you must offer it. And that's what those two chapters are about. And they're actually very rich and very important chapters. So um, I had planned on covering both of them, as I've been doing so far, about two chapters a, um, a lecture but I have about 21 pages of notes on these two, and I don't think we're going to be able to move through them. All. We'll see how fast, how far we can go, but probably it'll take us two lectures to go through it. All right, so let's start. And before we begin, actually, let me give you a highlight of what we're going to be talking about. The essence of those two chapters is that Every offering you must make must be made with a true intent to honor God. And every work, every sacrificial work that a priest performs must be performed by the priest to honor God. In other words, even though the sacrifices are offered for things that were done unintentionally. The contrition or the attrition or the sense of um, sorrow for what has happened must be authentic. 
So therefore, Leviticus isn't just a cold system of laws given to Israel so that, as, as Calvin said, to kind of keep them within a rigid framework and teach them obedience. It is truly a school of holiness. It's imperfect. It is lacking. But it is a true school of holiness. And when you compare the Levitical system to any other system in the ancient world, it is leaps and bounds ahead of anything else. The moral imperative of Leviticus is very, very strong. God is not interested in the exterior behavior only. He wants that exterior behavior, what you bring, the way the priest is closed, the acts that the priest and the sacrificant are performing, all these activities which constitute the exterior behavior must be an indication. They must spring form from an internal intention of doing the right thing before the Lord. That's what God wants to teach them. So even for those things that we did, that we did without knowledge or we did without intention, reparation must be, uh, must be brought to the tent and it must be authentic. That, was, um, that came to us in a very striking way uh, last week or the week before, I don't remember, for uh, my uh, eldest daughter, who's with us tonight. And uh, she was driving down the van, and there was a cat running next to the van. And she was being very careful, trying to avoid the cat. Unfortunately, the cat at the last minute swerved under the van, and she ran over it with the back wheel, so the cat was dead. And later on, we found out that that was the favorite cat of the daughter's neighbor. Now, it was completely unintentional. She wasn't, she didn't want to hurt the cat. Here she is faced with an action that resulted in the death of a pet that meant a lot to this other girl. And the fact that she had to sit down and write a note and go down and talk to this girl who was crying and give her the note and say, I'm sorry. made her and us realize how even unintentional things could require quite a bit of us. So the fact that they're unintentional does not mean they're not serious. I don't want you to confuse or think unintentional means venial. Right? They're important. So therefore, the whole Levitical system is very important. That's the fundamental message that we're going to see tonight as we go through the behavior of the priest and the one who's offering the sacrifice. So as I said earlier, the earlier chapters emphasize the mechanics, the preparation of sacrifices and their ingredients, as well as the special conditions that made certain sacrifices necessary. And we've gone through all of that. Here today, we're focusing on the role of the priesthood as officials in the sanctuary 
and detail the special care that must attend the sacrificial offerings in order to prevent impurity. Indeed, in those two chapters, there is an insistence on making sure that nothing impure touches the sacrifice or the priest. And if the priest is, let's say, uh, touched by blood, then he has to clean himself. Why is God so insistent on the purity? It's an outward purity, obviously. Why is he so insistent on outward purity? Because it must, it must show forth the interior intent of the priest and the offerer. Meaning that if you're going to present something to God, and God is all pure, and God is all holy, and you're convinced of it, would you accept to offer him something that is impure? See, this is what illuminates the entire text. Because we, always, we can always fall under the temptation to think of it as purely as a set of laws. And look at it in an objective fashion, ignoring the reality, the interior reality of the um, religious experience that these people were being taught. You come before the Lord, you make sure you're doing your best. And to help them clearly understand what best meant, God did not leave them any kind of ambiguity. He made it really, really clear to them. This is what I want you to do. Yeah? So, with that in mind, let's look at, the, at, at these chapters a little bit closely. Probably we're going to um, stick to chapter 6 tonight. Most sections of the sacrificial animals were prepared as food, and only relatively small parts of the victims were burned on the altar as God's share. Why is it that God chose food? Obviously, livestock and grains were part of daily life. I mean, your worth was in those terms. But God could have very well told them you take these things, right? you sell them for gold, and you bring the gold over, and you offer gold or precious stones. He could have gone with that kind of system. right? Why is it that he asked them to offer something that is perishable? I mean, if you offered gold, you offered stones, you turned them into statues, you could have adorned... Right? Well, statues, you probably couldn't because he told them not to, but let's say symbols, right? Palm trees or right? figures of lions, which were allowed. You could have enriched the house of God, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Why tell them that they had to offer something perishable and something that is food? I think there is two really important notions to the idea of a sacrifice. First, destruction. Destruction. When you sacrifice something, it is destroyed. So therefore, in our own life today, don't count on something being a sacrifice if 
that which is you're doing is bringing you pleasure. You've received your due. Sacrifice imply suffering. And only suffering. Do you understand that? So, fundamentally, Leviticus is a school of suffering. That's really important. Because the gold is not destroyed. You can go back and see it and take pleasure in the fact that it is adorning the house of God. You feel important. That burnt offering is gone. And in some cases, it feeds nobody. It's completely destroyed. You've destroyed some good. Utterly. And it's unusable after that. That is what sacrifice means. That's the first reason. The second, the second, that which you destroy feeds other, feeds others. That which you destroy becomes life for others. It's a paradox, but that's exactly what Jesus said, right? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for the sake of the kingdom yeah, will save it, will gain it. That's the principle, that's the profound principle that is already established in Leviticus. To be fair, it wasn't only among the Jews. This is a principle of offering that you find among many of the ancient folks. That which you offer is gone, destroyed. And the third really important item is the reason why you're offering animals is because it involves killing. And that's really important. A life must be lost so your life may be spared. A life must be lost, so your life may be spared. Indicating the seriousness of these offenses. It doesn't cost things. They cost a life. In, in this time of Lent, when we give up stuff, it is so that we can get Stuff. Lent isn't just spring cleaning. Lent isn't I'm emptying my house so I can get rid of things. That's step number one. I'm emptying my house so I can get rid of things so that other things may come in. Yeah? And what is this other thing that comes in? Yes. Yes, graces. And how do graces usually come into our lives? That's it. Suffering. That's how usually graces come into our lives. Under the guise of suffering. Now, here's the really interesting thing. These concepts that I'm sharing with you right now seem sometimes a little strange or odd to our ears or foreboding. But if you consider somebody who is standing up a business, everything I'm I'm saying makes complete sense. They're willing to sacrifice their time, their effort, their money, 
sometimes even their families, everything else to get the business going. Because they understand that all that they're sacrificing right now will have a payback later. They're sacrificing pleasures right now for great, greater payback later. Why is it that when we put it into financial terms, we get it? But when we put it into terms of eternal life, our minds is dulled, and these conversations can fill us with anxiety. Because underlying all that, we're not completely convinced that it takes this much to get to heaven. We want to coast, you see. Because underneath all that, we all suffer from the Protestant temptation. Christ died once and for all. He did it all. All we need to do is believe in him and we can coast. Life is good. And we get there. You see? It's very cozy. It's very comfortable. It's very comforting. And it's very, very wrong. And our mind stubbornly refused this truth. That's why what you've alluded to earlier is really important about the fact that it's perishable, therefore it bears repeating. You have to repeat those sacrifices. Right? You don't do it once, you do it every day. Because you need the habit, you need to learn. Yeah? You need to learn. We all need that. Now the key to these two chapters is the word Torah, which means law. Right? It is effectively instruction in how the priests must conduct themselves to be able to perform those sacrifices. So, we see that that is indeed the case, that this is an instruction, because a, um, when foreigners had settled in Samaria, by, had been settled by Samaria, in Samaria by Assyrian conquerors after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C., these new arrivals sought instruction in the proper worship of the God of Israel and in 2 Kings 17.28, we read that an Israelite priest who had been exiled from Samaria was sent back there and engaged in instructing, in giving the Torah to those newcomers. That is the book of instructions of how to offer sacrifices. So let me read a little bit from chapter 6. I'm reading from verse 8 through 13. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it, and the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen breeches upon his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has consumed the burnt offering on the altar, and put them beside the altar. Then he shall put off his garments, and put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning upon the altar continually, it shall not go out. We can be taken by the minutia of the text and wonder why is God telling him about the fat and the fire and this and that and forget the intention behind it. First of all, 
Put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite who realized that he had committed a, uh, a sin unwittingly. And assume you are an Israelite who fears God. What do you want to do? Now that you realize that, what do you want to do? You're going to go, oh, and offer a sacrifice, right? You want to offer a sacrifice and knowing that that sacrifice will be acceptable to God. How will, how will you know that? But how will the priest tell you? And what would you believe the priest? By the priest, yes, indeed. But why would you believe him? That fire on the altar was kindled by whom? No, not the priest. That fire was kindled by God himself when he consecrated the tent. That's heavenly fire. If the priest did not keep up that fire, can you be assured that your sacrifice is acceptable to God? No. no. So what is God asking his priest then to do in following these rules and regulations? What is he basically instilling in them? A spirit of what? Holiness, Holiness yes, but Awareness. charity. Charity towards the people. You're here to serve the people's needs. And in order to serve the people's needs, people, the people must trust you. Must believe that if they come to you, they will get comforted. If you're a true Israelite and you've committed an infraction before the Lord, and you have the fear of God, what is your state? You, if, if nothing else, at the very least, you're afraid that God's wrath may be kindled against you. Furthermore, you may be saddened that you actually offended the Lord. So what do you need? On an interpersonal psychological level, what do you need? Assurance, forgiveness, and? Certitude, and? Okay, but what do you... What is it that you really need? Consolation. You want to be consoled. You want words that come to you and help you in your pain. Yeah? The words of Saint John the Baptist. Right? Taken from Isaiah chapter 40. I am the, vo I am the voice of one who cries in the wilderness. That's the beginning of the book of Consolation, chapter 40 through 68, I think, 60-something, 60 66 or 68. That second part of the book of Isaiah is called the book of Consolation. The first part is called the book of Damnation. Okay? Comfort, comfort Israel, says the Lord. You want comfort. All too often, as I said, we can be taken too much by the mechanics of it. But at the bottom, at the, at the, at the fun, fundamentally, as human beings, we, we want what, everything you said. We want certitude. We want to know. We want to, to, to know that we're doing the right thing. But we want to be comforted. I want you to see God's charity behind all these laws. Because if you don't, you're missing the importance of the book of Leviticus. It's not just a book of laws. It's also a book of the foundation of the charity in 
Israel society. It says something else. Where do you receive your comfort today? If you truly want to be comforted, where do you go? You go to the casino. You go to the liturgy. You go to Mass. That's the source of comfort. It's the Mass. So, that is really a key, important element to keep in mind, keep in tune with what God is doing. God is not a fearful master who deals with, his, with the Israel as if they are his slaves. God is a loving father. God is a son. God is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Trinity that is guiding Israel along the way and through Israel the rest of the world. Now, command Aaron and his sons. That's a command. God sets out the liturgy. God tells us how we worship and he commands. To make it really clear, we, it's not up to us to decide how the liturgy will be formed, what goes in it, what goes out of it. Incidentally, if you consider, if you look at the book of the Pentateuch, and you consider the number of chapters between Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, that deal with the liturgy, it's staggering. And somehow we kind of miss it. Because we focus on the action. But it is very, very critical. And God spends most of his time talking about liturgy. So he, that fire will never be put out. And it's a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering in the morning and one in the evening. Continuously before the Lord. Why does he require a whole burnt offering in the morning and one in the evening? What is that an indication of? What is he trying to remind us of? He's trying to remind us of the fact that we continuously live right, in the world where sin is present. And because of that, His grace and His love are always present. He's reminding us, I will never leave you alone. I will always be there for you, no matter what. And I'll make myself accessible for you. So you can always come to me at any moment. Okay. Now, here's a really interesting thing that happens in the second segment, um, which starts with verse 14, which is the grain offering. And this is the law of the cereal offering. The son of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the cereal offering with its oil and all the frankincense, which is on the cereal offering, and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing order to the Lord. So that's the portion that is offered to God directly. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons, shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. Three times. Eat, shall be eaten, they shall eat it. Okay? It's unequivocal. What is that saying? 
And by the way, he adds in verse 18, every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, a decreed, as decreed for ev- forever throughout your generations, from the Lord's offerings by fire. Whoever touches them shall become holy. So, the priests must partake of the grain offering. It, this was considered indispensable to the efficacy of the ritual. And if there were portions that remained there for a longer period of time, they'd have to be destroyed. If the priest did not eat that offering, the offering didn't take place. You go to the tent, you present a cereal offering, but the priest does not eat of it. What happens to you? Yeah, you remain in sin. Let's just think about that for a second. What does that suggest? The fact that you go to the priest, you do everything you're supposed to do, he doesn't. Your sin remains. You cannot be forgiven. What does that mean? He's indispensable, yes. But from your perspective, how do you feel about that? It feels like it's, un- it's, an, it's an injustice, right? It's unjust, right? I have to do this all over again, but it's, it feels unjust, right? Doesn't it? Hmm. It is my responsibility, but your sin remains. I didn't do it. Your sin remains. You may not know that. That's the worst part of it. But it still objectively remains. It hasn't been taken away. Let's explain ourselves. You, me, broke the window of the neighbor. Right? Then I trust Lilian to pay because she's closer to the neighbor. So give her the money. And then Lilian forgets because something happened. The neighbor never get paid. That injustice remains. It doesn't matter. You need to stop. You need to look at it objectively and subjectively. As to the object, the fact that we do this or don't do that doesn't take anything away that the harm has been done, does it? No. Okay. As to the subject, I may not have done it on purpose. I may then try to do everything I could to repair it. God will look to that. But fundamentally, that still remains. Yeah? The question I'm asking right now is, why? It sounds like it's unjust that God would still hold this against me when I try to actually fix it. It was a law they could not live with. That's one angle to it. But there's another one that is just as important, which we can very easily forget. As I told you, our problem, our temptation, is entitlement. We think we are entitled to heaven. Let's back up a bit and remember what happened. Before the golden calf, who could offer sacrifice? Any head of a family, any firstborn. Any firstborn could offer sacrifice. Somebody did something wrong in your family, a firstborn can come and offer sacrifice. Done. When the golden calf happened, what was taken away from them? So let's understand what it, meant, what it means when we say that the priesthood was taken away from them. What did God take away? Not just the freedom. Precisely the ability to atone, to atone for the sins committed in their family. They gave it away. So, without God's mercy in setting up Levi as a tribe of priests, God's justice just took place. 
Therefore, even in a case where the spree is forgotten, you're still getting God's justice. Because none of us deserve or is entitled to God's mercy. You see? But in our thinking, we assume we're all entitled to it. We take it for granted. Pardon? Well, that's good. That's good if you don't take it for granted anymore because when we don't take it for granted, we'll look at that crucifix and our appreciation of what he has done for us deepens and we don't take it for granted. Yeah? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Confession is the act of mercy. We are not... We don't deserve confession. It's not our right. So if God takes away confession from somebody, God didn't commit an injustice. You were not forgiven. Exactly. Same Same idea. Exactly. If the priest did not say the words of absolution correctly, Mm -hmm. he didn't follow the form, your sins still stand. But somebody may not. And they may walk away thinking they're forgiven. Their sin still stand. No, no, no. I didn't say that. I didn't say the intent has nothing to do with it. The intent has a lot to do with it. But it's not enough. It's not enough. Right? We have a French saying, hell is paved with good intent. Your intent must accord with right reason. Your intent must accord with truth. Intent alone is never enough. All right. The key, though, they must partake of the grain offering. Right? So there is something that only the priest can do, and he becomes the indispensable person through whom God's mercy is channeled. Well, we're familiar with that, aren't we? No priest, no mass. No priest, no sacraments. And yet... So many, many of us, when they hear, we hear our son saying, I might become a priest. Oh, what do you want to do a priest for? Become a doctor or become a computer scientist or an architect or something. I'm a priest. Ugh. But I, I still want to go to heaven, but don't become a priest. Okay. So therefore, when that offering happened and the priest had made the offering, and he ate the food. What does it mean to you? Now we're going to get more into the subjective aspect of it. What is it supposed to mean for you? Bingo, sacrifice has been accepted. Right? Okay, so let's look at it a little bit more closely. Let's say I'm a priest. Line of Aaron, right? And you know what? I'm perpetually hungry. Right? I'm perpetually hungry. So here comes a guy who wants to offer a cereal offering. Right? What am I interested in? The food. Do I look at him? Do I examine his intentions? Do I do an examination of conscience to see if he's really sorry? Does he really mean it? Nah. Hey, give me the food. Let's go. That actually was a problem in Israel as it is in the church today. Right? Ambition, 
personal glory, vain glory, self-interest, nothing's changed. Yeah? Nothing's changed. You, th- this offering isn't mechanical. It isn't like, okay, I committed something, I give him over, here's the priest, I give him my stuff, he does the thing, and we're done. Check. No. I come to the, to the door of the tent, I have an offering to make. What is that offering supposed to represent? That I'm sorry, right? Yeah. Well, if you're a priest who fear God, aren't you going to check if I'm sorry or not? And if I'm not sorry, aren't you going to send me back? Like today, priests who have the power to retain sins. But so often, confession is like an auto mode. Sometimes you, you'd be better off not to forgive those sins. If, there is, if you as a priest don't sense there is a true intent to repent, why are you saying your sins are forgiven? You understand? So again, the whole Levitical sacrifice isn't a question of mechanics. It isn't an algorithm. It's not something you can replace the priest and the offerer with robots and think it's just going to work because you killed a beast. It doesn't work that way. Your sacrifice represents your intention. And your intention must be upright. And it must be according to the law. And it must be formed right. And the priest must be there to serve you and to accept your offering and perform the ritual so that you may be forgiven. It's a what? The whole, sac- the whole sacrificial system of Leviticus is a what? It's a, it's a service of mercy. It's God's mercy given to them. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Therefore, it is highly personal. You're the way you approach your, the, the, the altar and the way the priest conducts himself are very important. And everything we see here in the laws are simply the indication of how important this whole thing is. Yeah? Now, let's just think about that for one quick second. You cannot be forgiven in a Levitical order unless you go to the tent, you bring your offering you are repentant and the priest is honestly trying to do his duty, which is to give glory to God and offer the sacrifice, right? And when you do that, you're forgiven, yes? Okay. Now, would you say that um, no forgiveness, no peace? Is that a fair statement? Yeah? Okay. Would you say... Um, no forgiveness, no um, social justice. That one is harder, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we have the disconnect. Yeah? Because the two laws of Leviticus, what we're going to see, which Jesus summed up, were what? What are the two laws that Jesus gave as the sum of the entire law? Love God God, like yourself. 
love God, love your neighbor like yourself. He's talking to Israelites, isn't he? Outside the order of grace that he's going to institute in his blood, how do you show that you love God? You go offer sacrifices. Yeah? And can you love your neighbor if you don't love God? You cannot. No. You're with me, right? right. Yeah. True love of God, true love of neighbor stems from a love of God. Yes? Mm-hmm. Therefore, the only way I can truly love my neighbor is when I'm in peace with God, which means God has forgiven me, which means no forgiveness, no social justice. We have become so focused on the horizontal order, the intercommunal order, the order amongst ourselves, and we've disconnected it from the vertical order, the liturgy. And we've forgotten that only the liturgy heals, only the liturgy mends, only the liturgy brings graces, and the world will never be fixed without or apart or outside of the Mass. And that if in every parish, in every Catholic parish, the priests and the lay folks did one thing only, and that's going to sound so counterintuitive because we're so taken by the action, we believe so much in ourselves. If in every parish, the priests and the Catholics were to focus on the liturgy, to make it truly beautiful, resplendent, to show forth the beauty of liturgy, not for the form, but for the praise and honor and glory of God, the world will get fixed. Because the liturgy torques the world. That's how it works. But we're so outwardly focused, which is what Satan wants us to do, It's like you have a people, a bunch of people who are, who are dying of thirst because there's a small pool of water. And we're so focused on figuring out how we can share it amongst them, nothing bad with that, that we forgot right behind us there is a faucet. Just forgot about it. We can't even think there's even a connection between the faucet and the water. Just forgot. Put yourself in the shoes of Israel. To see what I'm saying makes sense. They're in the wilderness. The wilderness is a wilderness. Yeah? It's foreign territory. They can be attacked by anybody at any time. It's not a place where you can raise kids. There isn't much pasture over there. You really have to fight to keep your livestock alive. You can't even build a house. It's not your land. You can't settle down. You're perpetually camping. Don't you think there'll be a bunch of stuff that will worry you? Yeah? Why is it then that the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy do not start with, this is how you're going to fortify your camp, and this is how you're going to establish um, resources, and this is how you're going to find them, and this is how you're going to sustain them. Jesus summed it up in the Gospel of St. John. Seek ye First, the kingdom of God. How do you seek the kingdom of God? How do we seek the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God, by the way? What is the other word for the kingdom of God? 
Thank you. The Catholic Church. So he's basically saying, let me paraphrase for you, seek ye first the, the Catholic Church and everything else will be given unto thee. Now, we've turned it around. We made it upside down. Seek ye first everything else and the Catholic Church will be added unto thee. I've told you this many, many times. We think it is harder for somebody to be accepted at Harvard than to go to heaven. Harvard, that's serious. Heaven, that's easy. We flipped it. Yeah? We have our priorities. We have our duties. We have things to do. We're busy. Prayer will come after. Remember, in order for us to go to hell, we don't need to lose the faith. We don't need to stop believing in what the church teaches. We don't need to learn foreign concepts. We don't need any of this. We only need one thing. Get busy. That's enough. Let's get busy. I have my work. I have things to do. I have to finish them. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read the Bible. I'll get busy. It's enough. Because where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Or conversely, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. All right. Now, in all the period of Israel, Israel, there was always a certain amount of unbelief or disregard by the offers or the priests. Eh, who cares about the liturgy? Who cares if we do this and then the other? It has no point. Here's a passage. This is taken from the first book of Samuel, chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli, Eli were, who was the high priest at the time, the sons of Eli, back up a little context, Samuel, as a child, was given by his mother to live with Eli, who was the high priest. The temple of Solomon is not yet built. So Samuel is a child, and he's living with Eli. Eli is the high priest. He has sons. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They had no regard for the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. So again, I, I haven't read to you all the different ways in which you can offer meat, but it wasn't only uh, barbecued. You could boil it you can, in a pot. And the idea is that whatever you, when, when it's offered, when it's cooking, whatever the fork will bring is, is your part. So they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Well, I'm sorry. And he would thrust into the pan, okay, brother would take to himself. Moreover, before the fat was burned, remember the fat was always offered to the Lord. And you have to burn the fat first. Meaning you give God's portion first. Then you take care of yourself. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you but raw. The priest wanted his barbecue meat. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
my friends, when you are at Mass and you do not, you do not do your utmost to learn that you are in God's presence, you're showing God contempt. And that is far grievous than if you showed your brother contempt. Because you are offending God directly. This is why I keep on insisting on the fact that when you're at Mass or in the church, do not speak of anything but of prayer. Do not say hi to anybody. Do not salute. Do not shake hand. This is not a saloon. This is not a theater. This is not a social gathering. This is the holy tent of God. Do all that outside. Do not bring anything which is not sacred into the house of God. Do not offend the Lord. We've forgotten that. We take God for granted. We sit and we cross our legs like we're sitting with a friend. Think about those things. Think about who you are in the presence of when you go to Mass. Learn true reverence. If you want to please Him, there's nothing greater than offering a Mass. Nothing. Nothing that you can do. You can feed all the hungry in the world. It will not be as pleasing to Him as offering one Mass where you truly reverence Him. Because the hungry of the world are not God. Here, you're dealing with God Almighty directly. So as I said earlier, a priest was supposed to evaluate the offering being made in order to give the appropriate response or assurance. We see that in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tent? Who shall dwell on thy holy hill? Notice David, his focus is, who's going to live in your tent? Very odd question, because nobody can enter the tent unless being on the outside or unless being a priest. But he's asking the question universally. He longs to enter the tent, which we do so casually. Who shall dwell on thy holy hill? Listen, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from his heart. The way you worship is springing from your heart. And in the way you worship, you're expressing your moral stance. Because true worship comes from love. And love means you're walking blamelessly. It means that you are speaking truth from the heart. You do not slander. So who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his friend, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor? How easy is it for us in the church? We, we accuse this person and that other person and we fight over this and that and the other. This is not the way of the Lord. 
If you are in the presence of God Almighty, what do you care about what your neighbor is doing? What is it to you or to me? Nothing. You're in the presence of the Lord. You're inside his tent. David longed to do that. Solomon longed to do that. They couldn't. We can. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. But to do all these things, you have to worship in truth. You see, morality flows from liturgy. That's the order. You worship God in truth. God teaches you how to behave. That's how it works. So it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where I am. We may be the worst possible sinners. But if we enter the church and we mean to be sorry, we are sorry, we're asking God's forgiveness, that's the beginning of our salvation. So this is not a judgment on who we are. This is a question of what is our intent when we enter that church. What are we seeking? What are we going there for? What do we want? And how do we express it? Psalm 24, and I'll finish with that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. First affirmation, everything belongs to God. So stop fretting. Stop fretting about natural resources. Stop fretting about the future of the earth. Stop fretting. Everything belongs to God. He will give us what we need. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Again, that's what he's focused on. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So make sure you've done an examination of conscience. Make sure you've gone to confession. Clean hands, pure heart. Your intentions and your work. Must be clean. Present yourself. Be clean when you enter the house of the Lord. He who has clean hands your heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of his salvation. Vindication. You have, you have an injustice, you will be vindicated. Wait on God. He will vindicate you. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of, of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The, law, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your, your, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up. O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is... When we go to church, this is who we are. We are entering that gate. We're entering through this in, this, in this tent, in this heavenly tent. We are in the presence of the Most Holy Trinity. We want to make our needs known to God. First, we worship God in truth and in the Spirit. And then, we make our needs known to Him. And then, He feeds us. This is the most powerful weapon in the world. We just have to use it. You have too much work. You have too much studies. You have too many assignments. You're concerned about your job, the future. Go to Mass. Go to Mass. 
If you can't, at least make a spiritual communion. It's right there. The gates of heaven is right in front of you. So, to sum it up, this, the worship in Leviticus is not mechanical. It isn't automatic. It isn't about form. The form is there to allow the offerer and the priest to express sorrow and be assured that God has heard us. God put in place a structure by which we can worship and receive an answer and be consoled and be comforted. That's the intent of the entire sacrificial system in Leviticus. And that's why it's so important for us because in observing what they're doing, it teaches us something about us. In order to go, I leave you with this notion, especially in Lent, in order to go to the tent, what did the Israelites have to do? What did they have to bring with them? A sacrifice. So when you go to church, are you going empty-handed? How can your prayer be accepted if you're going empty-handed? If during the whole week before Sunday, you haven't sacrificed a thing, why would God receive your prayer? Is that justice that He would accept your prayer when He asked of the Israelites to bring something that was really meaningful to them? Would that be justice? Let's be realistic here. God doesn't hear my prayer. Well, all right. Did you do what you're supposed to do? Do you understand what it takes to get God's attention? Are you offering anything? Or do you just think it's free? If you think it's free, you're treating God with contempt. And in some cases, you're putting God to the test. What are you offering during your week? Clean heart, clean hand, pure heart. Offer up your vices. Offer up those things you're attached to. If your kids tell you you snap at us, learn to smile. That's a beautiful sacrifice you're making. If your wife tells you you're too busy, you're not paying attention to me, you're working too hard, give up work. One hour a week, pay attention to your wife. That's a beautiful sacrifice. If your husband complains about the food before the table, make an effort. Offer him a better meal. That's a beautiful sacrifice. If you have too much study, students, don't study on Sunday. That's a tough one. You want to sacrifice something, it's going to cost you. Remember that. But remember, it isn't a one-way street. Don't think you're doing the bigger part. Don't think, whoa, I'm just sacrificed this. This is amazing. I'm doing... No. You just threw two or three little pieces of grass in the fire. God's answer is going to blow your mind away. The way He answers back in His generosity. It's a two-way thing. He will take care of you. Just trust Him. Let's finish with a word of prayer. And then those who have to leave, you may be able to go and then we'll take some questions. All right. Questions. Yes. Uh, So the question is, when we go to confession, how do we know we've received absolution? And uh, if not, what are we supposed to do? It's really easy. God doesn't leave it um, to... um, It's not a personal judgment. The priest... So, every sacrament has matter and form. The matter is your sorrow that you're bringing over. The form are the words of absolution. 
and he must say them exactly as the church requires him to say them. Right? And through the ministry of the church, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? There's a whole segment that comes before it, but that key on those words. Through the ministry of the church, I absolve you. Not I forgive you. I can for- you did something, I can forgive you. It doesn't mean that your sin has been forgiven. A priest can't forgive you that you did something. He must absolve you. Take away that sin. That's the power he has. If he doesn't say those words, go to another priest and repeat the, conf- the confession. Yes? Oh, very good question. Uh, Jacob offered sacrifice, but it was the second. Yes, he was the second in the order of nature. Right? But who received the blessing? He was the firstborn in the order of grace. Yeah. Okay, so if somebody in the Latin rite tries to make you hold their hands, slap them. <laughs> Just kidding. Please don't. Just kidding. Just clasp your hand and then look forward. You're, you're, it's a breach to the liturgy, yes. And it, fundamentally, now these people mean well, don't get me wrong. They, they, they're, they're thinking that they're doing the right thing. Their intent is right, but it's mistaken, it's wrong. Because we don't fabricate liturgy. That's the problem. This is a priestly gesture. And it's coming from an intention to bring down the priest. and makes us somehow believe that our prayers make the Mass. The truth of the matter is, we can all be praying as fervently as we want. And if there is no priest, there is no Mass. Right? Most of the work is done by the priest, not by us. No, no, wait a minute. It's not a question of okay. It depends on the rubric of every rite. In the Maronite rite, not Eastern, Maronite, the rubric demands that you open your hands. But when you open your hands, you're doing it like a, um, a beggar, not like an intercession that the priest does. You don't, have, you, don't, you don't take out that gesture. You're opening it the way the Jews would in a temple because that was a very ancient way of praying. You open your hands. You're begging. That's a, a very profound attitude of sorrow and humility. Those attitudes that display is something completely different. It's a power of intercession, which is, which is an offense to God because it's sort of obviating the need of the priest. You need to look. I don't know what it is for the Chaldeans. There's a rubric. Check the rubric. It tells you. Ask your bishop. Yeah, they, they, they should be, the diocese should be able to tell you what the rubric of the Mass is. The question is, is it, is it a contradiction that one rite does it one way, the other does it the other? No, it's not. It's the beauty of the Catholic Church. God loves variety. In the Latin rubric, you're not supposed to hold hands because it's an abuse of the rubric, and they're not being attentive at what they're doing. They're not doing the right thing. And majority does not, is not a rule of law. That's not how the Catholic Church works. The, the, the structure of the Mass, the gestures we make, are not determined by the people. They're given to us, they're divinely inspired and given to us for our salvation. We don't toy with them. So therefore, we don't have the power to change these structures. And when we do it, it's an abuse and it's a contempt of God. And we shouldn't be doing it. That's the, that's the weakness we have right now, is that right within the liturgy, we have a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? They're not minor. No, 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 no. Excuse me. They're not minor. Let me show it to you why it's not minor. 
Very easy. Again, we have such a hard time understanding in the context of liturgy. When it comes to work, it's really clear. You go to work, you work there, and they tell you the dress code is no shorts. You show up with shorts. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to tell you, oh, it's okay? No, no, no. The bishop does not have that authority. The bishop does not have power over the liturgy. The authority of the bishop is only pastoral. It, takes, it goes all the way up to either the Council of the Bishop and the Vatican. But these changes are not written. Go look at the rubric of the Mass in the Latin Rite. The only position that you're supposed to do is hands clasped. That's the only one. I know. There are abuses in our church. That's obvious. Conflicting answers. Absolutely. That's why I'm saying to you, stick what the rubric says. Because that tells you exactly how we ought to worship. And the reason why I'm insisting on them, yes, you're right, in a sense that it's a small thing, open hands, or who cares, right? But what it's showing is the intent. What's the intent? The intent is, I don't really care to put in an effort to really understand how God wants me to worship. Right? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Right? They tell me to do this, I'll do it. Who cares? Right? That's not my problem. No. You're going to be held accountable. Look at it this way. I'm going to show it to you another way. There's this guy who comes to your house to he want to marry your daughter. And he show up with dirty clothes and a torn shirt. And you want to shake your hands. How do you feel about that? It's not. It's exactly the same thing. That's what we're doing to God. This is God Almighty we're talking about. So we say to God, it's okay to toy with your liturgy. Because it's not really important to me. Whether I open my hands or I keep them closed, who cares? God says, I care. I died for that on the cross. You, you have to understand, when you go to Mass, you're there to worship God. You're there to give God the glory. It's a duty. Yes. Yes. Yes, we stand. Exactly. No, 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 no. You, hold on a second. I'm sorry. There's confusions of issue here. What I'm saying to you is that we must do according to the rubric. If the rubric says you kneel, you kneel. If the rubric says you stand, you stand. If the rubric says open your hands, open them. If the rubric says keep your hands clasped, keep them clasped. But do you, do you hear yourself talk right now? You're basically saying it's okay for me to make liturgy. If the liturgy is appealing to me and it's nice, it's fine. Just realize what that means. We're basically saying to God, the authority you established on a rock that you given to Peter and the order of priesthood that you established, hold on, doesn't matter as much because we, the people, can make liturgy. No, it was made by the priesthood. Look, let's not play with words here. We are talking about what Jesus has established. He established his church with an order of priesthood. We must Reverence that. When we say to God, we who are not priests can do what your priests are doing, we're insulting Him. This is very important. Yes, on the surface, it's a small detail. Let me give you another example. On the surface, the contraceptive pill is a small little white thing. When a woman takes it, nobody gets hurt. It's a small detail. Most of the time, these sins come to us in small details. But they matter a lot. Yes? So 
Well, nobody. I'm not sure nobody paid attention. I'm, sure, I'm certain it has been repeated a number of times. At the end of the day, though, it is, as you said it earlier, the church has the, has the duty of teaching. She must teach adults. That's the duty of the church. It's up to us, though, to keep the truth. Yeah? Every one of us has the duty to know the Mass, to learn the Mass, so we can offer God the right sacrifice. But we're not doing it. So it's not the church, it's us. We have other important things to do. The Mass is at the bottom of the... Ask yourself this question. How many people show up late consistently to Mass? All right, now ask yourself this question. If tomorrow the priest were to say, next Sunday there's going to be a pile of cash in front of the altar, 10 million bucks, first come, first serve. You don't think people will be camping out the night before? Yes. But th- that's exactly, you, you're, you're hitting it on the, on the head. The reason why in the Latin right they're doing it is because they want to, and it's been done in a very, very deliberate way to raise up the lady to the level of the priest. Yeah. L- l- hold on, hold on. Let me put it to you this way. The church is God's house. It's God's house. You are going to visit God. You knock at the door, right? And a couple of archangels open and welcome you. Do you come in and then tell God how to run his house? Would you do that? Put God on the side for a second. You're going to visit the President of the United States, the White House. Yeah? You've been invited to visit the President of the United States in the White House. Do you expect to show up in shorts? Do you expect to walk into the Oval Room and then dictate how the protocol should be followed? Do you walk in and then tap the President on the shoulder and say, Howdy, pal? Would you do that? Do you change it? So when you walk in and you tell them, I'm here to change the protocol. We the people are going to change that protocol in the White House. What do you think they're hearing? You see the rebellion? You see why it's important? That's why it's important. Because the intent behind it is not one of worshipping God. It is one of worshipping ourselves. That's why it's seemingly a little thing. It's a little thing. Oh, yeah. You're absolutely right. It's hard. Perfect. So, Yes, it is hard. So let's take as an example, and here's one that we should pray to and ask his intercession, St. Thomas More. The entire body of bishops, save two, I think, signed the decree of the king. They apostatized. The entire body of Catholics, for the most part, the majority of them, said, all right. They give up. He had his head cut off. But he's a saint. Where are they? Choose your camp. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Okay. It's very clear. Again, to the rubric. The preferred way of receiving communion in the Latin rite is on your knees and on the tongue. Not standing on your knees and on, in, on the tongue. Okay, I, 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 I find it so... The preferred, yes, absolutely. Yes, thank you. 
Yes. So if you're not following the preferred way, it doesn't mean you're committing a sin. Because other ways are permitted. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. It is permitted. It is permitted to receive it on the hands. You're not committing uh, a sin. It is also permitted to receive it under both species. You're not committing a sin. You can do any of those. This is different than opening your... This is not a break of the rubric if you decided to receive it in your hands. Okay? Thank you. Let's be very clear on that. I have a whole different story with this thing, but it's permitted. Yes. Okay. You don't have to. You don't have to receive under both species. And also, I typically advise against it. I do not recommend you receive under both species. Because while theologically it is absolutely correct, and it's representing the entire cedar meal, because Jesus blessed the, the bread first, and he blessed the third cup. So you're essentially understanding it as a covenantal communion. Now you know what? 99.99% of Catholics have absolutely no clue what I've just said right now. Right? So what are they learning when they get in under both species? They're learning the body, the blood. The body, the blood. It's repeated every Sunday. So what gets into their heads? I need both. That's bad pedagogy. It's bad pastoral teaching. In fact, right around the Council of Trent, and you can read the book of, on St. Peter Canisius, and it's in fact written right there. St. Peter Canisius is a doctor of the church, and he was president of the Council of Trent. And back then, the Dutch and the German wanted to introduce communion under both species. Where did this come from? From the Protestant who wanted to bring down the priesthood and make, make people equal to him. Why? Because the reception under both species was reserved to the priesthood. And they, don't, they didn't want to uphold the priesthood, therefore they wanted to make everybody be a priest. And that seeped into the, the Catholic Church back then. And here's what they found out. Every diocese where that, hap, where that um, uh, um, way of receiving communion was introduced, within one generation, they lost their faith into the Eucharist. Because practically... That's what you're teaching them. It is really, again, it is introduced willfully to make us equal to the priest. The priest receives under both species. We're going to receive under both species. Intinction is perfect. When you receive it by intinction, it is perfect. Pastorally, you're understanding that the body is reunited with the blood. You're receiving the risen Lord. And you're receiving on tongue on top of it, which is perfect. Well, anyways, yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 very good question. Difference between atonement and absolution. Atonement means paying the price for, right? Erasing the debt. Christ did that, right? Absolution is applying what Christ did to your specific case. That's essentially what the difference is between the two. You're absolved because Christ atoned. And you're absolved by his power. Right? That's essentially what happens. Yeah. Yes. This is only allowed, it's not allowed universally in the church. Only the United States and Canada and maybe some other parts. It was allowed fundamentally because of the weakness of the faith. People are being more and more tempted by this horizontal degree. And so again, the priest touches the bread and we want to do the same thing. You see how it is always following the same principle they're pushing for we are the priests. Okay, it's a fundamental destruction of the church. And these things have seeped into the liturgy, and unfortunately, they're there. But they're allowed. Okay, now, it's, it harkens back to the past where at one point in the history of the church, they did allow for it. There are fathers who would tell you that when you receive God, make your hands be like a throne and receive him 
in, in that fashion. And I would say, yes, that was absolutely true. But I would also add that I do not think that the attitude back then was the same as today. And there's a fundamental difference. But that's my, my take on it. Yes, last question. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the, remember, the act of contrition is what exactly? It's the verbalization of what you brought to the confessional. When you go to confessional, you must be contrite. Your sorrow is, is, the, is the matter you're bringing into the confessional, and the form are the words of absolution. Right? So fundamentally, even before you go in there, you should have at least said it in one way or the other. Right? So hence, whether you say it before he gives you the absolution, which is the preferred way, or you say it after, you have to be contrite anyway. That is why it stands. Correct. So there's the human element that we're talking about earlier. It isn't just the form that counts. It's what you're receiving as a human being in your body. We need comfort. We need assurance. We need to know that we've said it, we've confessed it, and we've expressed our sorrow to another human being. And they heard us. So it's that comforting element that is important. Now I'll add one more thing before we close, is that don't go to confession expecting to receive um, a therapy. Right? I mean, God forgive them, but there are these people which I call black holes. They go in confessional, and it's half an hour before they come out. It's not, it's not therapy. Now, you know, I just shut up and I say, okay, they have a great need. God be with them. I'll pray for them. Right? But fundamentally, confession, you walk in, you say the type of sins you've committed. I've committed gluttony. Three times, three times this week. That's it. Not my uncle George came over and I wanted to please him, so I did this big dinner and then we ate. And after that, I had a pe- two pieces of chocolate. And no, 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 gluttony three times. Right? I got angry twice. The kind and the number. That's it. That's all you have to say. Well, ho- ho- try and come up with a number that is bigger than what you did. Right? <laughs> Err on the side of precaution. Right? Don't minimize it. Exaggerate it. Because that's good for your humility. You understand? That's it. Da, 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 da. It should take you literally a minute. A minute. Right? So that's what, what should happen in a confessional. And the priest must give you... And don't expect the poor priest to be a psychologist or a or Padre Pio. I mean, you're, you're here. You're going to hear the words of Jesus. That priest is, has told you you're forgiven, you're forgiven, believe it, and then go to your penance. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.